with you. If you have your Bible, please turn with me to the Gospel of John. It's in your New Testament. We're going to continue this morning our study through the book of John. We'll be looking this morning at John chapter 1, verses 35 through 51. If you have a Bible, you can turn there. If not, no worries. You can find the text printed for you in your bulletin. And I think I'm still learning. It's on the screen behind me. So you can follow along there uh, also. This is God's holy and inspired word. The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. And Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour, or 4 p.m. in the afternoon. One of the two who had heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. And he brought him to Jesus, and Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John, and you shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee, and he found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. And Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found the one of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming towards him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? And Jesus answered, Before Philip called you, you were under the fig tree. I saw you. And Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened up and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. This is God's word. Let's pray together and ask him to help us with this passage. Heavenly Father, you tell us that we do not live by bread alone, but we live from, by every word that comes from your mouth. Would you give us a hunger for your word this morning? Would you take this word and nourish our souls? Would you revive us? You tell us that your word is sharper than, sharper than any two-edged sword, and I pray that you would pierce us with it in a very good way this morning. Rebuke us, correct us, teach us in all righteousness. Convince us this morning that we are a bigger mess than we realize. But at the very same time, in you is more love and grace than we could possibly imagine. We ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Most of you probably know this, 
but as some of you are still getting to know me, but I'm from Kentucky. And Kentucky does not equal football. Basketball. And so because of that, I grew up a huge basketball fan, but specifically, I grew up a Kentucky Wildcat fan. And it's been on my bucket list for as long as I can remember. Uh, I wanted to see my Kentucky Wildcats play in the Final Four. I just wanted to go to the Final Four. But above that on my bucket list was to see Kentucky play for a national championship. Many of you probably know, if you're a basketball fan, in 2012, Kentucky was playing in New Orleans, which is relatively close to Oxford, Mississippi. It's driving distance. Kentucky was playing Louisville, and they won that game, the first game of the Final Four, which was awesome because I don't like Louisville. <laughs> um, and they were playing, that meant they were playing Monday night for the national championship against Kansas. I get a call that Sunday afternoon from three of my students who were at the Final Four, and they said, Jason, we've got one ticket for you in the lower arena in the Superdome, and not only that, we have a place for you to stay. Would you like to come to the game with us? I was like, nah, I'm good. No, I'm kidding. (laughs) (laughs) Of course. That's what I'm thinking. Kentucky went on to win the national championship, and do you think I've told anyone about that story and that experience since that time? (laughs) I'm telling you now, five years later. And you see, I've talked about it all the time. I was sending pictures. I was taking pictures of the celebration, sending them to my family in Kentucky and to my friends. I talked about it on social media. I even found... (laughs) a little insight into me, as we're moving, I found the ticket stub from the game that night. I took a picture, and I sent it to the three guys that invited me, and I said, hashtag never forget. <laughs> I, as many times and many opportunities that were afforded me, I would invite people into that story so that they could share in the joy with me. What am I doing? I'm evangelizing. (laughs) Friends, regardless of what you think about evangelism, everyone in this room is an evangelist. We can't help it. Evangelism is commending the things that we love and cherish, and that's what we do all of the time. Think about all the things that you love that you invite people to share in your joy. TV shows. Did you see that episode? Books, football teams, games, children, sports, bands, music, everything. We cannot stop talking about the things that we love and cherish. We cannot stop inviting people into those stories so that they can too share in our joy. This morning, we're going to talk about evangelism. And before you head for the exits, hang with me. Listen. I realize that people outside the church, but also people inside the church, they don't like that word. It makes us nervous because it brings up fear in us and it oftentimes makes us feel guilty. There is not another area in the Christian life where more people feel defeat and discouragement than this area called evangelism. And sadly, when it is talked about in the church or in our context, 
It's shame and guilt. It's very guilt-driven. A call for you to do better. Love people more. What's wrong with you? Don't you care about the lost? Does that help? It might help for two weeks. But shame and guilt never help. Because uh, they end up oftentimes making us feel worse and more hesitant to do it in the future. And so here's my hope this morning. My hope is that as we come to this topic, we will do so in a refreshing way. So that when you walk out, out of here this morning, you will leave here more excited about talking about your faith than ever before. Remember the Gospel of John last week, we said that John's purpose in his writing was to tell people about Jesus so that they might believe in his name and through believing in him, they might find life in him. You see, the means in which God has chosen to make himself known in the world is through one person telling another. It's through this thing we call evangelism or witnessing. And by evangelism, here's what I mean. In sharing the story of the gospel with someone and inviting them to share the joy that you found in Jesus. That's evangelism. Why are we called to do it? Why does God choose this way and and call us to share our faith with other people? And not just the the elite of the Christian life. He calls everyone, as we're going to see in this passage. Well, because God's desire for the world is that every nation, tribe, and tongue, that all people would bow the knee to him and worship him. And so here's the question this morning. How do we do it? How do we do evangelism? In this passage, we meet two guys, Andrew and Philip, that actually show us a thing or two about evangelism, about what it looks like to tell other people about Jesus. And here's what we see. Sharing our faith involves two things. Humility and personal invitation. Humility and personal invitation. So let's look at number one, humility. Look at verse 43. So Jesus approaches this man named Philip. And we learn in these few short verses a few things about Philip that are pretty amazing. Philip, he's eager. He drops everything in order to follow Jesus. And so he's all in from the beginning. And you get the sense that Jesus was, that Philip was anticipating Jesus, that he was kind of looking for him. That's the sense that you get here. And he goes to his friend Nathaniel, and we learn something here that Philip knows his Bible. Look at verse 45. He knew the Old Testament. Nathaniel, we found him in whom we, the law and the prophets point. We have found Jesus. He, let's, let's put it this way, he is on fire, we could say, for Jesus. He's passionate about evangelism. Day one, he goes and starts sharing Christ with his friends, and he wants them to come and encounter Jesus with him. But let's keep going. Philip, he goes to his friend Nathaniel, and what's Nathaniel's response? Look at verse 46. Can anything good come from Nazareth? You see, Nazareth was considered backwoods. It was considered this podunk, hillbilly region in Galilee. And so when Nathaniel hears that, he's not like Philip. He's not all in from the beginning, okay? He's not eager. He's skeptical. 
He is thinking, are you kidding me? You can just see Nathaniel rolling his eyes and thinking anyone with any intellectual integrity at all would not possibly believe that the Messiah is from Nazareth. That is so backwoods. Here's what I want us to notice really quickly that I think it's worth noting is notice the community that Jesus has around him right from the beginning. He's not forming a Christian club. Jesus has around him Phillips, who are really eager and are all in. And he also has around him Nathaniels, who are kind of skeptical and hesitant and not so sure what they think about Jesus. I think that's an important note. Let's keep going. Look at verse 46. Look at how Philip responds to him. Come and see. And I think there is tons of things that we can glean from this, and let me just mention a couple uh, insights from this. First of all, the feel is that Philip's evangelism is really natural. Notice that, and you notice this with Andrew as well, that he's, it's not forced. It's not a guilt-driven thing. There are no techniques. There's no manipulating someone. There's no unnatural and very weird interactions They are simply commending what they cherish. They're commending what they love. It simply just flows out of them in a very natural way. Secondly, we also notice that he respects Nathaniel. Notice he doesn't say and grab him by the collar, accept Jesus or else. No, that's not what he does. And also notice he's not offended by Nathaniel's comment. He doesn't get defensive. He's not put off by the question. And we shouldn't be either. Friends, we do not have to be afraid of people's skepticism and questions about Jesus. The ground of our confidence is not in our ability to defend Jesus. Jesus does not need defending. Jesus is never threatened by other people's questions. Jesus is never threatened by other people's skepticism and we shouldn't be threatened by it either. Notice also, and this is really what I want to hone in and focus on, did you notice, and Andrew does this as well, but notice that Philip includes himself, and this is really important as we think about evangelism, he includes himself in what his friend Nathaniel needs. Andrew does it too. Verse 42, we see that. In other words, they do not say, hey, Jesus will be over there at this time on this day, and I hope you figure it out. Have at it. Good luck. I hope you find Jesus and find what you're looking for. No. Did you see? They assume, the assumption here is that they need Jesus too. The assumption is Let's go find Jesus and encounter him together. I love this because the eager believer, Philip, looks at the skeptic Nathaniel and he says, I need the exact same thing that you need. I need Jesus too. Let's go see him together. Friends, I don't know how long you've been a Christian but you never outgrow the gospel. It's been said that the gospels are not the a, the gospel is not the ABC of the Christian life. It's the A to Z of the Christian life. 
It's everything. It's an everyday need for our souls. The gospel is the ultimate leveling experience. It sobers us because when we get before Jesus, here's what we realize. We're all the same. We're all the same. Sinners desperately in need of someone to rescue us. Even on your best day, think about this. What's the best day that you've ever had spiritually? Think about your best day spiritually that you've ever had. Someone had to die for you. Even on your best day. You see, believers... You've been a Christian for as long as you can remember. Or maybe you're here this morning and you're not a Christian or you're skeptical of Jesus. We all need Jesus. We all need the exact same thing. There's an addiction recovery ministry in Memphis, Tennessee called Love in Action. One of my friends who's a pastor was invited to one of their group's therapy sessions uh, one time. And he went to this group therapy session and he said he was sitting in the back and there's this group of Folks, and there's a man up, and he's sharing his story and basically talking about his struggles and his sin. And he says, all of a sudden, hands start to go up. Then they start to go down. The man sharing goes deeper into his sin, and it, he said it gets a little uncomfortable. Hands start to go up again, and then the hands would go down. After the session was over, the director comes over to him and says, well, what did you think? He goes, I was deeply uncomfortable. I I mean, I don't understand because the hands are going up left and right. And the guy speaking refused to acknowledge any of those people. They had questions and he says, oh, no, 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 you don't understand. At Love in Action, we have a policy. We have a belief that when someone confesses their sin, that if you've ever done it or if you've ever thought it, then you raise your hand because no one here struggles alone. No one here struggles alone. And then he finished by saying this to my friend, oh, that our churches would be more like that. Can we talk? You know what those outside these walls are waiting to see and waiting for in Birmingham? They're waiting for this church and other churches in our community to raise our hand and to say we are the people that need Jesus the most. They're waiting for us to be a church that not just talks about the gospel but actually really needs the gospel. You see, when we think about this area of evangelism, It's very insightful, isn't it, as we see in this passage. We often get very nervous and feel very inadequate and full of fear. Why do we do that? Well, because when we think of evangelism, we think of canned presentations. We think of knowing every response to every possible question that we could possibly get. And listen, there's a place for training and presentations and all of that. Please don't hear me saying that we don't need that. But that's often where we go, and it makes us uh, very anxious. What if instead of leading with those things, what if instead we led with our own need? What if we led with other people our own brokenness and our own need for Jesus? You might have heard it said that the two most powerful words in the universe are me too. 
And so as we're talking to our friends about Christ and about the gospel, instead of leading with our, uh, their need and how much they need Jesus and how much they need help, what if you said, you know what, I really need Jesus too. Come with me and let's encounter him together. Secondly, not only does evangelism involve humility, but it also involves personal invitation. And we'll work that out in this passage. Did you notice, and I think it's very interesting, that John doesn't emphasize these men's personal experience with Jesus and how they came to know Christ. Did you notice that? And what's interesting is that's what you and I tend to focus on. The experience of someone coming to Christ. John doesn't mention that at all. You see, what he talks about in this passage and what he chose to focus on is we see it in verse 41 and we see it in the rest of the passage. We see this word found repeated in this passage. Andrew found Peter. Philip found Nathaniel. What do we learn from that? Well, the, the primary means that God uses to build his church is evangelism through personal invitation. Through personally inviting other people to come along with you to encounter Jesus together. And you might be saying, well, okay, but they had Jesus with them. He, he was physically present. And so they could literally bring people to the feet of Jesus. And we can't do that now. Oh, yes, we can. You see, friends, where are we now? We're in church experiencing the living body of Christ. You see, we are in a place on Sunday mornings where Jesus is in high definition or 4K or whatever it is now. Because when we gather here on Sunday mornings and the word is preached, Jesus is present. When we gather here around the table in the sacraments, Jesus is here. He's at work in his living body. And we learn here that one of the most effective ways, it's not the only way, but a really, really effective way of sharing our faith is to simply invite people to Faith Presbyterian Church on Sunday morning because Jesus is here and because we encounter him when we're in this place. And when we encounter Jesus, it changes us. It starts to transform us. And so one of the best things we can do is to get our friends and our co-workers and people in our neighborhoods in front of the freight train of the Word of God and in front of the freight train of the sacraments because change begins to happen. How does Jesus change us when we encounter him? Well, we learn here in our passage. Look at how Jesus uh, or Nathaniel encounters Jesus in verse 47. Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Here's what that means. He looks at Nathaniel and says, here's a straight talker. Here's a guy who tells it like it is, who's incredibly transparent. He's a straight shooter. And notice here that Nathaniel has never met Jesus. He doesn't know him. 
but he knows him to the bottom of who he is. And Jesus is not, he affirms him. If you kind of get the sense of what he's saying, Jesus doesn't say, here's Nathaniel who's rude and abrasive. No, he, he kind of appreciates the way he's made in God's image. And so what we see here is Jesus is very personal. And when people come to him, and as Nathaniel comes to him, Jesus communicates that he thinks very highly of him as a person created in the image of God. And Nathaniel's thrown off, isn't he? He doesn't, and we would be thrown off too. But Nathaniel is back on his heels, and look at verse 48, and he says, Wait a minute, Jesus, how do you know me? We have never met. And he says, Jesus responds and says, No, 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 I saw you when you were under the fig tree. Nathaniel's jaw hits the floor. And he says, you're him. You're the son of God. You are the king of Israel. And listen, I don't know what it was that was happening under the fig tree, but it had to have been something that was so private and so significant that when Jesus said, I see you, I know you, and yet I still love you, that was the thing that made Nathaniel's faith come alive. Why was that so profound? For Nathaniel. Donald Miller, who has written a few books, and one of them is Blue Like Jazz, and I don't agree with everything Donald Miller does and says, but he's got some really great illustrations. He says this in Blue Like Jazz I've had about 50 people tell me that I fear intimacy, and it's true. I fear what people will think of me, and that is the reason I don't date very often. People really like me a lot when they know me a little. But I have a great fear that if someone actually knew me a lot, that they wouldn't like me. That is the number one thing that scares me about having a wife, because she would have to know me pretty well to marry me. And if she got to know me well, then she wouldn't want to be with me anymore. This is us. Susie and I watched an episode a couple of nights ago, it's a show on NBC, and Randall says this in another way, I have left, lived my whole life striving for perfection for fear of thinking if I let up just a little, no one would want me. Friends, I don't know where you are this morning, but I know this, that one of our deepest fears as human beings is that someone would know us all the way to the bottom and once they knew us, they would either want to hurt us or abandon us. We are scared to death that if someone saw us all the way to the bottom, if they saw our struggles and our secret sins and our addictions and how much of a mess our family is and our children are, that they would want to turn and run the other way. But that's not Jesus, you see. When Nathaniel encountered Jesus, he gets transformed on the spot because he encountered a man, the son of God, who saw him all the way to the bottom and loved him. Look at verses 50 and 51. Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these, he said. 
when you see heaven opened up and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Now, what in the world is that talking about? Well, the context, let me give you a snapshot of this. The context for this is Genesis chapter 28, Jacob's ladder. I don't know if you're familiar with that story, but Jacob uh, had stolen the birthright from Esau. And Jacob, at this point, has no friends. He's a scoundrel. And he's on the run. And he's completely exhausted, and he's in the wilderness. And God gives him this vision, and in the vision, he sees a ladder from heaven to earth and angels ascending and descending on that ladder. And that was meant to comfort Jacob as a way of saying, God saying, I am with you. I have not abandoned you and left you. And so, so much so, it was so powerful for Jacob. The next morning he gets up and he calls the place and builds an altar and calls it Bethel, the house of God. Because that was the place where heaven and earth intersected. That's what Jesus is referencing here in this passage. But did you notice something very important in verses 50 and 51? What is not mentioned there? The ladder. There's no mention of a ladder. Why? Because Jesus is saying here to Nathaniel, I'm the ladder. I am Bethel. I am the house of God. I am now the place in which heaven and earth meet. I am the place where God powerfully comes into your life. That's incredibly good news. Because Jesus is telling us this morning, there's no ladder for us to climb. We don't have to fight and claw and scratch our way to be in the presence of God because Jesus is the staircase. Jesus is the ladder. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. I have done it all. Absolutely everything. Now come and follow me. Evangelism. It's inviting people to come with you to encounter Jesus. Because you see, that's where the power is. The power is encountering Jesus. Because when you encounter Jesus, you find someone who knows you to the bottom and still loves you. And you encounter someone who has done absolutely everything so that you can be with him. And friends, if we let that reality get deep down inside us, it will transform you. It will change you. And when it changes you, here's what happens. You begin to look at the most messed up person in your neighborhood. The most messed up person in your school. The most messed up person in your family or in your office or workplace. And actually believe that you need the exact same thing as they need. And when you believe that, you see how that levels the playing field. When you actually believe that, then you actually can go to them in great confidence as someone who needs Jesus and lovingly say to them, come "Come and see. Come and see this Jesus because I need him too. And so I hope you'll come back next week as we continue to encounter Jesus together and see how great and wonderful he really is. Let's pray. Father, would you help us to see our own need this morning? 
Would you help us to see how wonderful you are and how uh, deep your grace is? That no one is never so good that they're beyond the need of grace. And we're also never so bad that we're beyond the reach of God's grace. Convince us of that truth so that you would be more beautiful to us. So that you would come overflowing out of us. So that we would cherish you more. And that when we share and talk about our faith, it would be the most natural thing in the world. Because you are so dear to our hearts. Would you do that in Jesus' name? Amen.